Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 21st, 2011, and my guest is Scott Sumner of Bentley University. He blogs at The Money Illusion. Scott, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks for inviting me, Russ. Scott, our topic for today is a very broad topic. It's my ignorance. Uh, I have trouble figuring out what's going on, especially in the area of money and monetary policy. You seem to understand it, so I'm coming back to you to ask some of the same questions I've been asking for a while, see if I can get a little bit smarter. So let's start with a little bit of a review. In your perspective, uh, from your perspective, what does monetary policy have to do with the mess that we're in right now? Okay. Basically, I see monetary policy as driving nominal spending in the economy or nominal income. And By so, nominal, you mean just the dollar value the, rather, rather than corrected for inflation. Right. So if, if your listeners were to imagine their own income and then add up everyone else's income in the entire United States, that would be total nominal income. And so that's the, that's the variable that I think is sort of the key to the business cycle. Um, now, I don't think it's a key to long-term economic growth. In fact, I don't think it really even matters much in that area. Uh, but in terms of the business cycle, I think fluctuations in nominal uh, income or spending are, are really the key. We, I'm going to stop you there again. So when you said it doesn't matter in the long run, you mean, for example, if we doubled nominal income via our wages doubling, but we didn't produce anything more, we'd have twice as much measured income, but we wouldn't be any richer. Right. That, you just so the see fa- prices double, and then your your real purchasing power would be unchanged. So that's an example of where the government could affect, say, uh, could affect nominal income, but as a, as a whole. But we wouldn't be necessarily, in fact, in that example, we wouldn't be any better off. I think in most people's minds, this is one of the great sources of confusion mm-hmm. uh, in macroeconomics. Well, but I'd have to double the income. Um, there's, and there's a famous Mark Twain passage, which we'll put a link up to, uh, where people have trouble perceiving that. Your income, it, it depends what it can buy. So if it can't buy anymore, it's, you're not any richer. Right, and I think one of the big confusions in macro is that people confuse sort of two issues, the real and the nominal. So, for instance, when people talk about what can the Fed do, there's one question, which is can the Fed boost nominal spending or nominal income? And there's a second question, which is would more nominal income boost real output? And those are really two very, very distinct questions. Um, I think most economists believe, in the, at least in the long run, that uh, monetary policy can target nominal variables or control them in some sense by controlling the quantity of money. Uh, there's somewhat more disagreement about how that plays out in terms of real variables, whether they're affected in the short run or not at all or over a fairly extensive period of time. But when you see a lot of the debates uh, about Fed policy, you, you see people sort of mixing and confusing the two issues. What does it mean to say the Fed is um, out of ammunition or not able to do anything? Are you talking about nominal spending or are you talking about real output? Two very, very different questions. A good example would be Zimbabwe, which you know produced spectacular growth in nominal spending, uh, but almost all through inflation, so there was no growth in real output. In fact, to the point where inflation was sufficiently high that real output would fall because the normal channels of exchange were so uncertain and troublesome. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, they had other supply-side problems, too. So, I mean, that's, that's one issue. And my view is that there really should not be a serious debate about whether monetary policy can drive nominal variables. It's just a question of how determined the central bank is. You know, they can print almost unlimited amounts of money. I think the real debate in my mind should be what is the proper uh, path of nominal spending or inflation or whatever nominal variable you wish to target, or it could be the money supply, as Milton Friedman proposed. There's going to be some um, nominal uh, variable that's going to be sort of the anchor for the monetary system. Another example is the gold standard, where it was anchored to a fixed nominal price of gold for many, many years. So you, you have a monetary policy that in some sense determines 
nominal uh, aggregates, and I happen to think nominal income is the best one to uh, stabilize. Uh, and then the second question is, okay, if you do that, what sort of real outcomes in the economy do you get? And um, that's where I distinguish between the business cycle and long-run growth. I think monetary policy can help smooth out the business cycle um, by having a stable path of nominal income growth, but it can't speed up the real growth in the economy. That's due to uh, structural factors, government policies, uh, incentives, all sorts of things Productivity. like that. Productivity, et cetera, yeah. So why, what went wrong, do you believe uh, – there's two parts to this question. What went wrong to get us into the mess and what has gone wrong with getting us out with respect to monetary policy? Obviously, there's a – we debate in the public policy sector or sphere about every aspect of, of policy. We debate fiscal policy. We debate monetary policy, the structural things, um, side issues about what to do with the housing market. But basically, you focus a lot on monetary policy. So what went wrong – Right. With monetary policy both to get us here and to fail to get us out. Right. So first of all, if you just look at the the path of nominal GDP over the last five years and knew nothing about the rest of the economy, you didn't know there was a subprime bubble and crash and banking crisis and all that stuff, you didn't know who was elected president in 2008, you would predict a fairly severe recession just based on the path of nominal GDP. You know, in 2009, it fell at the fastest rate since um, the Great Depression, and it's it's grown very, very slowly uh, since, much more slowly than during a normal recovery. So that's one one level of causation. But then, of course, people will say, well, that doesn't really explain anything. Why did that happen? Yeah, isn't that or just a – isn't – when we have a recession, isn't nominal income going to go down? No. For instance, in 1974, we had a very severe recession, and nominal income rose fairly briskly because we we had high inflation. That was, you know, the famous oil shock case. Okay. Um, so, um, real GDP falling is virtually the definition of a recession. So, right. if I was talking about real GDP, I would have just stated a tautology. But for nominal GDP, um, I, I do think there's a causal relationship between a fall in nominal GDP, which as I say, I think is controllable by the, the Fed, and the impact on real output. So then the ne- next question is, well, what caused nominal GDP to fall? I mean, certainly the Fed probably didn't want this to happen. And, you know, there I think it's it's a sort of a complicated story where parts of it have to do with the financial crisis sort of unintentionally made monetary policy more contractionary than the Fed wished or desired or expected. And second, in late 2008, the financial crisis was a big distraction, so I think the Fed wasn't really focusing on the fact that its monetary policy stance was inadequate to promote nominal growth. And another thing is that I think there's a tendency to confuse symptoms and causes. When you have a a severe crisis, all sorts of things happen to the economy that look like causes that might very well be symptoms. Uh, For instance, almost every crash in nominal spending is associated with a financial crisis of one sort or another throughout history. And there's a tendency at the time for people to blame the uh, problems on the financial crisis because that's much more visible than the fall in nominal spending. So this is that was the original view of the Great Depression, that it was caused by you know financial problems. Later, uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz started to convince economists that it was actually monetary policy failure. But, uh, you know, I could point to examples like Argentina about 10 years ago where their deflation and fall in nominal GDP led to a severe financial crisis. Um, And then, of course, more recently, what's interesting about the current situation is um, you had in both the United States and Europe very real problems that had nothing to do with monetary policy. In the United States, it was our subprime fiasco. And in Europe, it was fiscal uh, policies, uh, especially in places like Greece. So those are outside of the story I'm telling. But what happened is when nominal GDP fell in both places, each of those crises spread and became much larger than the original problem. So you sort of started with some bad loans made for a variety of reasons. 
And then you had this fall in nominal GDP, and instead of just having a subprime crisis in America, we had a huge debt crisis that spread into you know commercial loans and municipal loans and all sorts of other things. And then in Europe, instead of there being a Greek debt crisis, there became a Eurozone debt crisis because of the fall in nominal GDP. So people, I think, you know, they view the financial crisis as the problem, whereas I see it as more of a symptom of a deeper problem, which is inadequate nominal income, which makes it tougher to repay loans. After all, most loans are nominal loans. They're not indexed to inflation. So when you know, nominal spending falls, it's much harder for people or governments to repay loans. Yeah, we should digress. Let's digress about that for a minute. My presumption uh, remains, after many conversations, some on this program, remains that the real danger of deflation is a simple danger. It's not as frightening in and of itself as people make it out to be. The reason it's dangerous is that it's rare. It's often unexpected. And if I have made a promise to repay you $1,000, which is, a, as you say, a nomi- nominal promise, meaning mm-hmm. it's it's just a certain amount of money. That's all we mean by nominal. It just means dollars in yeah. some, just in absolute numbers. So I made a promise to repay you 1000 If there's deflation and I have trouble uh, and my wages fall, for example, all of a sudden my ability to repay that has changed and you're expecting to get that money and do something with it. I might not be able to keep that promise. However, if we had expected deflation, then we would have had a different interest rate implicit in that loan and things would have been would have been very different. So it's unexpected deflation can lead to contractionary problems as people Yeah, struggle. I think that's right. But let me just make one little addendum there. Yeah, um, a good example of what you're talking about is in the late 1920s when we had a little bit of deflation, maybe 1% or something. Uh, per year. I'm not, I'm not sure the exact number, but, um, you know, real GDP was growing strongly, so people's uh, nominal incomes um, maybe were going up 3% a year, something like that. Because uh, monetary because, policy was relatively neutral, you're saying? Yeah, it was relatively neutral, and, you know, um, so people sort of expected back in those days that there might be a little bit of deflation, and so that didn't really create any problems for the economy. It did very well in the late 20s until, you know, the end of 1929. But what what tends to happen is um, when you get a severe deflation, um, it's almost always, you know, unanticipated. Um, So in the 1930s, you know, we had this big drop in prices. And and the reason why it's sort of always unanticipated is that it's hard to really have anticipated deflation at a rapid rate because what that would do is it would make the real return from holding cash become very, very high. And and that's just not like an equilibrium solution to an economy. It's sometimes called a liquidity trap. So if you had 10% a year deflation, people holding cash would earn a real rate of return of 10% on just sitting on cash in their wallets. Right. <laughs> and the economy isn't really capable of generating that kind of real rate of return on a safe asset like cash. So instead, you get uh, a liquidity trap develop. And well, what do you mean by that? So, well, I don't, I don't really mean trap in the sense that most people use the term. I don't think it's a barrier to expansionary monetary policy. All no. I mean is that you get a situation where people sort of hoard currency and um, interest rates on other assets like government bonds fall close to zero. And, but, but that sort of environment, my point is that because that's a, not an equilibrium condition for the economy to have that sort of real interest rate on cash, what would tend to happen is if you tried to run a deflation rate that was very rapid, you'd probably end up in a depression um, for various reasons. But mild deflation, which still allows for a positive uh, interest rate, you know, is certainly a feasible solution. And we've we saw that in the late 1920s. Um, now, in our modern world, unfortunately, we're we were sort of expecting a uh, not a 20 situation, but a positive rate of inflation and also positive real GDP growth. So most people were probably expecting about 5% nominal growth, and they made their plans on that basis. They signed wage contracts and debt contracts on those expectations. And when they didn't pan out, um, nominal uh, income fell about 4% from mid-2008 to mid 2009 that fall was 9% below what people expected based on trends. And so that that really made it a lot harder uh, to repay debt. And it pushed a lot of sort of marginal debts over the line into problem debts. 
Um, it's still true that you know much of the debt problem was bad decisions, but the amount of actual distress you have depends also on the ability of people to service those debts, which is you know national income basically. I want to come back to this um, uh, parallel between our subprime crisis and the European crisis and how people see them as two different things and you see them as being essentially both being exacerbated, made worse dramatically by a failure of monetary policy. So we're, I wanna, we'll come back to that, but I want let's stick with the with the um, your observation a few minutes ago. You said the Fed very focused in 08 on the financial crisis. Uh, for whatever reason, failed to note or failed to respond to this drop in nominal income um, and dropped the ball, mm -hmm. made things uh, worse. So as a casual observer, I would be puzzled by that. And here's the obvious question, and help me understand it. Around that time, the Fed was doing some of the most aggressive monetary interventions of our lifetime. They were injecting, I don't know, a trillion, two trillion, I don't remember the numbers, you probably do, yeah. trillions of dollars in what's called high-powered money. That is, it's not like literally printing money and dropping it from a helicopter, but entering into the its books, uh, member banks, buying up, buying up assets of, of various banks and then entering onto the books of those banks, uh, reserves, which they would now be free – to lend. And so you're suggesting that the Fed was negligent in being insufficiently aggressive and having too tight a monetary policy. But on the surface, it's the most aggressive and expansionary monetary policy in recent, maybe ever. Mm -hmm. So reconcile those two well, okay. points. First, let's just be clear on what we're talking about here. So you're presenting sort of the liquidity trap view that they. they Pushed all this money out there, and it didn't I'm not do presenting good. anything. I don't. Oh. I, all I know is that I look at the balance. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't have a. I have a mild horse in this race. We'll get to the my horse well, later. Actually, but let me put it this way: I'm characterizing your view. Okay. As a, in other words, there's two issues here. One is would more nominal spending boost real spending, and the second is would would expansionary monetary policy boost nominal spending. And we just know from the data that we haven't gotten a lot of nominal spending in the last three years. Right. So. The, the real question is, why haven't we gotten much nominal spending given this big increase in the monetary base? And um, I think there's uh, several reasons for that, probably three reasons I could cite. Um, one reason is when they started doing this in um, late 2008, um, they simultaneously instituted a program called Interest on Reserves. Um, this is They'd never done this before, paying banks interest on the reserves the banks held. And so what actually happened is almost all of this new money that the Fed injected in the economy went into the banking system and sort of sat there as what's called excess reserves, meaning cash that just sort of sits on the bank balance sheet, but they're not doing anything with it's it the reserves, other than collecting interest from the Fed. There is a uh, – the, the Fed requires – that they keep a certain minimum amount, right. and they're well above most, if maybe not all, maybe oh, all yeah, banks are way above that I minimum. I could tell you they're more than. Usually, what happens is required reserves would be like fifty billion, say. Yes. And excess reserves might be one or two billion. Now we have required reserves still being around fifty or sixty billion across the whole system. Yeah, across the whole system, but the excess reserves have gone into the trillions. How do you explain or, or that? Maybe between one and two trillion, and that's from one billion or two billion. So we're seeing perhaps a, a thousand-fold or something on that order of magnitude increase in excess reserves. It's almost all gone into the excess reserves category, and I think the reason there's really two reasons for Don't that. One that is that they started paying interest on reserves. Now this might really surprise you because people don't really remember it this way. But during the big crash in nominal GDP, which basically took place in the second half of 2008, the Fed interest rate target was not yet at zero. Okay, um, it was running around one two percent. Okay, and the Fed decided they wanted to put a lot of money into the banking system, a lot of liquidity to sort of like bail out the banks or you know prevent the system from freezing up. 
provide liquidity, but they didn't want a highly expansionary monetary policy. So the reason they started paying interest on reserves, surprisingly, was to prevent interest rates from falling to zero sooner than they actually did. Now, in the end, in the middle of December, interest rates were finally cut close to zero. Um, But during that big um, injection of money in the second half of 2008, the Fed specifically wanted it to stay in excess reserves and paid banks interest on that in the hopes that it would uh, stay there and prevent interest rates from falling too fast. In other words, the policy was basically contractionary in its intent, and that's pretty generally accepted. Um, now, it was offset by the fact that a lot of money went in there, but um, my didn't point do is that... It, a term we use in monetary economics is it was sterilized. It was made so that it didn't really have any effect. They paid banks to just sit on the money. No, hang on. So this is this we're getting close to to getting rid of some of my ignorance because this is one of the deepest and strangest parts of of this whole episode. Currently, banks are earning about a quarter of a percent on those reserves that they're those excess reserves, mm-hmm. and some those who who sneer at the implications of paying interest on reserves say, well, a quarter of a percent on on what what is it, two trillion? Is that what the, the level of excess reserves is? Yeah, I I'm not sure, but it's certainly well over one trillion, say between one and two trillion. So people say, Oh, it's such a small amount of money. But of course it was higher initially, as you point yeah. out. It was close to what, one percent initially? Yeah, and and it, well, yeah, it was around. It, they changed it several times in late 2008, but it was somewhere around one percent at times. And you know, the, the other thing you have to look at, though, is um, and I'm not, uh, as I'll say in a moment, I'm not sure that right now that's a big problem. But you know, even a quarter point is more than banks can earn on, um, say, treasury bills or s- certain alternative investments. So. Um, you have to look not just at the amount that's paid, but the amount relative to the bank's alternatives for other safe investments. Right, but so here's the question. You, you, you stated as if it were a fact when you said why the Fed did this. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what, what's going on in the mind of the decision makers of the Fed, of which Ben Bernanke is the most prominent, but it, there are other people with influence. It's somewhat of an emergent decision. Uh, it's deeply puzzling. Why, in the, it, at a time when the American economy is struggling, when unemployment stinks, when the economy is recovering at a tepid pace, very disappointing to everybody across the political spectrum, why would the Federal Reserve discourage those its activity from having an impact? It does nothing. Well, let me let me state it in a way that's not at all controversial. Give you something that's you know in the public record. Uh, two days after Lehman Brothers failed in September, uh, the economy was, uh, you know, clearly worsening. Um, the Fed had a meeting, and they decided not to cut interest rates. They left their target at 2%. Okay. Um, now, here's my question. If, in the fall of 2008, the Fed was doing all it can to revive the economy, why would it not have cut the Fed target from 2% to, say, one and three quarters, one and a half, one and a quarter, one, <laughs> three quarters, you know what I mean? Uh, this is certainly what I favored at the time. And, you know, I think that uh, there's this sort of, um, we compress history in our minds, and we, we remember the Fed um, getting more aggressive in early 2009 when it started the first quantitative easing program. But I think we tend to forget that in the last half of 2008, when the actual collapse in uh, nominal GDP occurred, uh, the Fed was actually pretty passive. Um, at, at, after Lehman Brothers failed, they issued a statement saying that we see the risks of inflation and recession as being equally balanced. In other words, from their point of view, the economy was right on target, but there was some risk that there'd be too much spending in 2009 and some risk there'd be too little spending in 2009. And those risks were balanced, so they said, on balance, we're not going to cut interest rates. Now, at the same time, they wanted to push a lot of money into the banking system. And, you know, other things equal, that's clearly expansionary. My point about interest on reserves is that it essentially neutralized that injection. So the, the injection of all the money was expansionary. Then the decision to uh, pay interest on reserves sort of 
tied up the money and made it non-expansionary. So if you net the two out, it's simply a passive stance by the Fed during that period. So I've suggested, it's, it's a depressing suggestion, that the policy of paying interest on those reserves was simply a backdoor subsidy to the banking system. Again, people say, well, it's only, quote, it's only $5 billion at current rates. So $2 trillion in reserves at, at a quarter of a percent is about $5 billion. At 1%, it's about $20 billion. And you can argue whether $20 billion is a lot of money or a little bit of money. Uh, I think the, the important question is for some banks, it was a great deal of money. And you, you can't just look at the entire system and say, well, for a system this, you know, for an overall banking system, it's a trivial subsidy. I think for certain banks, it may have been the difference between uh, survival and not. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, but, that's certainly possible. And uh, That's the empirical question I'd want to... You know, again, I think, though, it's partly that they had these twin objectives. They, they wanted to put money in there to help the banks, and they wanted to uh, not have interest rates fall to zero. As you probably know, if you simply inject a lot of money into the system, the free market interest rate will tend to fall normally uh, because um, you're increasing the supply of money, and so that depresses interest rates through the liquidity effect. That's how monetary policy normally operates. So this huge injection of late 2008 normally would have pushed interest rates immediately to zero if the Fed had not done the interest on reserves. So why did – let's give the Fed the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Why was that a unattractive um, outcome for them? To push interest rates to zero yeah. right away? Yeah. Well, as I, as I said, believe it or not, they said that the risks of inflation and recession were equally balanced. And they were sort of looking through the rearview mirror. Inflation had been high in the previous 12 months. But the futures markets are more specifically what's called the tip spreads, um, which is the difference between interest rates on regular bonds and index bonds. Those financial market indicators show that investors expected about 1.2% inflation per year over the next five years. Very low. That's below the Fed's implicit 2% target. So I've argued that actually the Fed should have been worried about inflation being too low, not too high. But they were sort of like driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror and trying to notice when it was going off the road. And they weren't looking at the market indicators, looking down the line to see where the economy was headed. And if they had done so, they would have seen that inflation was probably going to come in below target. Now, uh, let me hasten to add, these are just futures indicators. They're often Uh, incorrect. It Uh, it just so happens that the one I cited the day of the meeting uh, right after Lehman failed did turn out to be fairly accurate. We've run about 1.2% inflation on average since that meeting, although it's been highly volatile, deflation in 2009 and much higher inflation in 2011. But on average, we have about 1.2% inflation over the last three years. So um, that's that was one of their mistakes to have sort of a backward-looking policy and not take market indicators um, into account. Um, I think if they'd done so, they would have been more aggressive. And I think if they could go back in a time machine, you know, seeing what's happened, I think they now realize they made a mistake in late 2008. And they, some of the aggressive moves they've done, which have not had much effect uh, for reasons I'll get to in a moment, you know, would have been more helpful back then. The problem we're in now is once interest rates get near zero, even eliminating interest on reserves may not be enough to get the money circulating in the economy because with interest rates near zero, there's almost no opportunity cost for um, banks to just sit on money. And um, what you really need then is um, a more aggressive uh, target, a policy of targeting some variable like inflation or nominal GDP at a level that will raise expectations of future nominal growth and will make the um, price of assets go up and the demand for credit go up and boost current spending in the economy. And the Fed is really unwilling to do that. So they've, they've missed their chance to play around with conventional policies like cutting interest rates, which they could have done after Lehman failed. Now they're in a more difficult, unconventional world where they can't cut interest rates anymore because they're near zero. And they're simply afraid of using, for whatever reason, unconventional policies that would be effective, although they've tried some sort of ineffective yeah. unconventional policies. Um, or let me be more precise, not completely ineffective, but not effective enough. 
So I, I would say that all the things they've done probably have prevented the economy from being in a deeper depression right now. Uh, I'll concede that. But not enough to um, promote a rapid recovery like we saw from the early 1980s recession, for instance. Which was also a fairly large one. Yeah, another deep recession. And that one had a very fast recovery, along with very fast nominal GDP growth, of course. Um, so, um, you know, again, I mean, to me, there's, in a way, there's no mystery about the weak recovery. If people say, where are the jobs? There's no jobs because GDP growth is slow in real terms. Why is real GDP growth slow? No mystery there either. Nominal GDP growth is very slow. So in the 83-84 recovery, nominal GDP growth averaged about 11% annual rate for six quarters. In this recovery, it's been a little over 4, 4 to 4.5% nominal growth. Now, what does that mean? What it means is in a world of low inflation, you're only going to be getting about 3% real growth, which Which is is barely above trend. And that's why we've had such a small reduction in the unemployment rate. We're, we're growing in this recovery over the last few years just barely above trend growth in the economy. But Scott, all of this presumes that, that, that somebody's in charge of nominal income and nominal spending. And if we went back to that 83-84 recession, can you point to things that the Fed did rather than just things that just turned out that way? Well, they had an easier job because all they really needed to do was cut interest rates to um, promote a – more rapid recovery, and, and they, they did start, that aggressively. And they started high. Now, in our situation, um, what you find is, and, and by the way, it is not just the, the Fed. What I found in looking around the world today or looking back through history is every single time I believe that countries get into this zero-rate situation, monetary policy tends to be less expansionary than expected. You, you tend to stay in this slow nominal growth phase for um, often an extended period of time. And, um, you know, we went to low interest rates in the early 30s, and they stayed that way all the way into the early 50s in America. Japan went to near zero interest rates sometime around the mid-90s, and they're still there. Um, Europe and the United States have have gone into a low interest rate environment, um, you know, in the last three years and are basically still there. And even more interesting is the fact that twice in Japan and twice in Europe, they tried to escape from it by raising rates, and they did so prematurely. And each of those four occasions, the central bank had to do an embarrassing about-face very quickly and cut them right back down. It occurred in Japan in 2000 and 2006 where they raised rates. The economy slowed, and they quickly had to cut them again. And in Europe, the European Central Bank raised rates in mid-2008 and then had to cut them soon after. And they did it just this year in April, I believe. They raised rates from about one to one and a half. And then the European economy slowed in the latter part of this year, and the European Central Bank has recently cut them right back down. So those are four very embarrassing about-faces for central banks, all because they, they were anxious to get out of this zero-rate trap but hadn't created the robust nominal growth that would support higher interest rates. So they did it prematurely, essentially. So where's, but where's the cause and effect? So, you know, if you ask a, a person, um, uh, somebody running a business, saying, well, interest rates are really low. This is your chance to go out there and really do some great projects that are, you know, mm-hmm. why isn't that happening? The standard answer is, you know, the standard answer you hear is, well, banks are uneasy about lending because the future's uncertain, and businesses are uneasy about investing because the future's uncertain, and that's why interest rates are low. Is that true? Well, that's why we it, don't, excuse it, me, that's why we don't see a lot of investment. What, it depends what you mean by uncertain. I mean, there's, there's kind of two arguments on this. There's the liberal argument and the conservative argument, and they're both probably true to some extent. The liberal argument is that the low interest rates haven't helped because there's not much demand in the economy, not much spending. So companies are operating factories at, you know, say 75% of potential. They don't need to borrow to expand their plant and equipment because there's not much demand for their goods. Or in the housing market, there's, sure, there's low interest rates, but since house prices keep falling, why would someone want to buy a house now? So there's not much demand for credit. And so the interest rates 
reflect the weak economy. The conservative argument is that a lot of bad government policies, you know, scare businesses, deter investments, taxes, regulations, so on. Um, and that may be true, but I, I think that, and it, I think it is true to some extent, but I think that the the more, the liberal argument here is really all it, all you need. I don't think it's a complete explanation of the recession, and I've, I've argued to some extent against liberals on issues like, um, you know, unemployment insurance and other things that I think are increasing the structural rate of unemployment in the economy. But on balance, I think that when you have very weak nominal spending, the free market interest rate will tend to fall to zero, even in an economy that doesn't have a lot of structural weaknesses. Um, you, you don't. It's not an assumption you need to really explain what's going on here. But then, what's the implication of what we ought to be doing? I mean, what? So the the the, the left of center approach is to say. Okay, so we just need to spend more. We need to get nominal income up. They agree with you. Nominal income's been been falling or is not rising at a fast enough rate, and so government needs to fill that gap by spending more money. Uh, so that's their standard argument. Why are they wrong? Well, they're they're arguing for government spending, which I think, first of all, won't really help very much, and second, it's much more costly than monetary stimulus. So the best way to and probably the only way to really promote uh, faster nominal GDP growth is to get a more expansionary monetary policy. So I think the, the mistake on the left is to put too much faith in fiscal stimulus. Fiscal stimulus is relatively weak, and it also tends to be sort of offset or neutralized by monetary policy. But let's say monetary policy stayed as it is. Uh-huh. The, the president and the Congress got the Keynesian religion. They listened to Paul Krugman. And they spent uh, – they increased government spending in the United States by over a trillion – let's say a trillion dollars this year, uh, which is what many people, again, are advocating who are, are Keynesians. They, they argue interest rates are too low. The Fed has no bullets left, so they can't lower the interest rate anymore. So the best thing to do is have government f- – government spending a trillion dollars. Isn't that going to increase nominal well, income? Here's, here's the tricky part. When you said let's leave monetary policy as it is – you, you slid over a very, very subtle and complicated question, and that is, what is monetary policy? And I find when I talk to people, everybody I talk to seems to have a clear and definite idea in their mind of what we mean by holding monetary policy constant, but they don't equate with each other. So for some people, that means the Fed keeping the money supply constant. For others, it means keeping interest rates constant, which is a very different policy. And... Um, I think both of those are wrong because that's not what the Fed is actually doing. It's not uh, what the Fed is actually doing is adjusting monetary policy to conditions in the economy. So they'll do some QE, then they'll back off. They'll do some more, or they'll do operation twist, or they'll promise to keep interest rates low for two years. And these these policies are not highly effective, but they're probably effective in slightly nudging the economy a little bit faster, a little bit slower. So what the Fed is doing is it's doing these on and off policies as it reads the incoming economic data. If the data gets stronger, the Fed does less. When the data gets weaker, the Fed does more. What that means is that if fiscal stimulus does succeed in promoting a little bit faster growth, the Fed will react by doing less quantitative easing and other policies of that sort, and it will very likely neutralize most of the effect of the fiscal stimulus. Now, I'm not trying to stake out an extreme position here. If, if the federal government did an enormous amount of fiscal stimulus, yeah, I think it would boost you know, nominal GDP. Uh, whether it be a good idea is another question, but obviously if you take it to extreme like the spending in World War II or something, it would definitely boost measured GDP in the economy. Uh, but for the amounts that are politically realistic, um, I, I really don't think – let me put it this way. The original stimulus bill was, I believe, around $800 billion in yep. 2009. It was $787. It ended up being $825. And um, yeah, I think it was a mixture of spending and some, some tax rebates. About um, a third of each. Two, well, one-third tax rebate, two-thirds uh, spending. And of that two-thirds, one-third on state payments to the states and one-third on expansionary um, activity of various kinds, so-called right. expansionary, actual spending. Okay. 
So, and that was done in early 2009, about the same time the, the Fed was getting very worried about the economy and did a well, program of buying Scott, mortgage bonds. Excuse me one second. It wasn't yeah. done in 2009. The legislation yeah, authorizing I mean, it, was, it, it, was, it was enacted. It was enacted. It, it took a while to spend it, and it, it's, it spent out over two, three years. Right. right. But importantly, by the way, a two. lot of modern theories say the effect on demand should come – through expectations, so it should start even when the program is in discussion. You know, but no. so um, okay, you've got that program then. Now, the, the the standard way of looking at it is to assume the the Fed is just this passive bystander. But everything we know about Ben Bernanke throughout his career tells us very clearly he had no intention of allowing a Great Depression too on his watch. You know, he's a scholar of the Great Depression. Right. Talked he about passionately believes the Fed blew it by right. not being more aggressive. Right. He's also insisted all along the Fed has lots of ammunition they haven't used. He's talked about things they could do, things they re- that he recommended the Japanese do that he hasn't done yet. And so the Fed has a lot of ammunition left, including the most powerful tools, which they haven't pulled out yet. And... Which are the, wait a minute, which well, are setting a higher inflation or nominal GDP target basically is the most powerful one probably if, if they could yeah we'll talk about that later uh, maybe you Go know ahead. that would be uh, politically controversial especially if they did it in terms of inflation uh, I prefer nominal GDP but here's my point suppose Obama did nothing in uh, 2009 there's no way the Fed would have just sat back passively and watched the economy collapse. What would have happened is with less fiscal stimulus, there would have been a lot more monetary stimulus. I don't know exactly what it would have looked like. I'm not saying it would have exactly made up for the lack of fiscal stimulus. But my point is this. Any estimate of the effects of fiscal stimulus are probably going to be wildly exaggerated by not taking into account the reaction function of the monetary policymakers. And that's the big flaw in the way we think about fiscal stimulus. And no matter how many times I make this point, I find it's very hard for people to absorb it because they want to think in terms of other things equal. They want to think like, okay, there's the monetary policy. Now let's see what fiscal policy can do. But it just doesn't work that way. If fiscal policy does more, monetary policy will do less. That's how things work. So I, I'm, I agree with your idea. I've always felt it's an interesting psychological insight that that the greatest living scholar of the Great Depression, which most people would agree is Ben Bernanke, nothing can be more embarrassing than for his legacy to be that he allowed it to happen under his watch. For one thing, he's a great scholar of the mm-hmm. of the Great Depression. For second, there's this famous conference where he, in, in the presence of Milton Friedman, who's mm-hmm. not with us yeah. any longer, who I would argue would be the number one scholar of all time, but fine. Ben Bernanke's second. Now he's first because Milton's gone. But at that conference when Milton was still here, Bernanke said, don't worry, Milton, we won't let it happen again. Now, as you said earlier, maybe that's he's achieved that level. He, he did enough to avoid a Great Depression. He mm-hmm. didn't do enough to avoid a Great Recession. Yeah. So, But why would he even get this close? Why would he, when he saw that the that that's 787 now 825 billion of stimulus wasn't doing very much why would he counteract it you're suggesting he counteracted it and that's why it had no effect is that what you're saying yeah, yeah. I, I mean uh, the way i would put this is i mean i like your did, argument he Scott. didn't like <laughs> he didn't go out and say aha i'm going to counteract this now i don't think he, if you asked him he would deny counteracting no it. Doubt. And, and he would honestly you know in his own mind he he would certainly not believe he did that but I believe that if you really think through logic, the logical implications of what the Fed would have done in the absence of fiscal stimulus, that in essence it would sabotaged. Well, I know that's a very counterintuitive and very controversial statement, and almost nobody agrees with me. But I think that's because they're not thinking about the issue clearly enough. It's not that the Fed would ever set out to hurt the economy intentionally or anything of that sort. But I happen to believe the Fed underestimated the amount of stimulus that was needed. If there had been no fiscal stimulus, their estimate of what was needed on the monetary side would have been substantially higher. And that's that's the logical point I'm making. Now, if, if you word it in a certain way, it sounds very appalling. It sounds like the Fed is sabotaging yeah. fiscal stimulus, and that's not how they think word. of it at all. Yeah. But that's really kind of what it amounts to when you think about it logically. 
Let me give you an example of, of how the way we're thinking about these issues is so um, unlike the orthodox view. Can I take one minute to read sure. a quotation? I bet you cannot guess who said this in 1999. Go ahead. What, this is about Japan. What continues to amaze me is this. Japan's current strategy of massive unsustainable deficit spending in the hopes that this will somehow generate a self-sustained recovery is currently regarded as the orthodox sensible thing to do even though it can be justified only by exotic stories about multiple equilibria, the sort of thing you would imagine only a professor could believe. So this is my view, basically. Just interjecting. Yeah. Continue. Meanwhile, further steps on monetary policy, the sort of thing that you would advocate if you believed in a more conventional, boring model, one in which the problem is simply a question of savings investment balance, are rejected as dangerously radical and unbecoming of a dignified economy. End quote. So he's saying that he's amazed that people are suggesting Japan do deficit spending when they already have this big debt and asking, why aren't we doing the conventional monetary stimulus? Now, do you know who said this in 1999? Well, I'm going to guess it's Ben Bernanke from the way you're talking about it. Paul Krugman. That was my second guess. (laughs) So, you know, here's Paul Krugman saying exactly what I'm saying now. And, um, you know, I feel like my view of monetary and fiscal policy was the standard view. And in a sense, the only reason we're even having this conversation right now is that in some strange way, the conventional view became very unconventional in 2008 and nine. As you probably know, I'm, I'm not a particularly well-known economist, at least prior to getting into blogging. And so the only reason we're having this interview is once I started blogging, I found that my view which I thought was the conventional view, was in fact radical. a, a yeah. <laughs> fairly radical view, and it got a lot of attention. A lot of people sort of thought of it as a very provocative, um, uh, you know, unconventional view. And so this is what I find so strange about what's going on, is we have this situation where um, the, the standard view somehow twisted around from being monetary policy is the natural way of preventing a depression, which is the story that came out of the Great Depression, supposedly, to this view that it's actually fiscal policy that needs to do this. And now some people will say it's different now because we're in a liquidity trap, but, you know, um, Japan had zero interest rates roughly in 1999 when Paul Krugman made this statement. So Let me come it, back. Let it's, me... Not, it's not really different. And um, I'll just read you one very quick Quotation out of the textbook, number one textbook in money. Monetary policy can be highly effective in reviving a weak economy, even if short-term interest rates are already near zero. So that's what we're teaching our students right out of the number one textbook. And I found in late 2008, almost none of my colleagues believed this. And what they were all saying, oh, monetary policy can't do anything right now. We have to use fiscal stimulus. What textbook is that? Mich- uh, Frederick Mishkin, uh, Money and Banking. So... One thing that that Krugman's been saying a lot lately is that uh, people who worried this would be me, uh, people and and others, people who worried that the ex, the injection of a tr- two trillion or so of, of reserves into the banking system is going to cause inflation. Look how stupid they were. They were crazy. They were wrong. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now. When people ask me, so why didn't it happen? I quote Alan Meltzer who said on this program oh, maybe two years ago, well, that's because they're not spending it. Then you come to the question of why it's not in the economy. Of course it didn't cause inflation. They're sitting on it. So the question I think it comes down to is that I think Krugman would justify his current position by saying, well, it's true that in theory monetary policy could do something. But when the banks aren't going to spend the money you give them, then you're stuck and the government has to step in. And you're suggesting that that's partly because the bad policy of the part of the Fed of paying reserves and partly because well, of other... Also, uh, here's one other point he would make and where I partly agree with him. He would say what you know Japan really needed to do was to set a higher inflation target. And uh, by that the way... That is, create expectations on the part of folks to, that... To lower the real interest rate. So if the nominal rate is stuck at zero... Let's say you have 4% inflation. I think that's the number Krugman uh, recommended. Then the real interest rate becomes negative 4%. In other words, it doesn't really cost anything to borrow money because you're paying it back with cheaper dollars in the future. This is something Ben Bernanke recommended the Japanese do as well. Um, now, interestingly... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Do what? 
uh, you raise their inflation target. Target to four rather than its current apparent well, zero. Well, I don't know if he mentioned the number four, but, but I think what he example. mentioned was um, to do what's called level targeting, which means make up for the deflation. So Japan has had some mild deflation, and um, what Bernanke said is that they should have some inflation now to sort of catch up for the previous fall in prices. And so it was certain, I can't remember the number, but it, I think there may have been numbers like 3 or 4% mentioned in his article. Um, this was something he wrote, I think, in the early 2000s. And um, so, but interestingly, he's rejected that um, for the United States. And his argument is that we don't have outright deflation like Japan. So that's that's the reason he's able to sort of reconcile these. Well, it's hard to know. Seemingly you know, given, given the way, given the way that the uh, uh, Department of Labor calculates housing prices into yeah. the into the CPI, it's very, it's they made some arbitrary choices. They might be right. It's a bizarre method. I'm sure the measurement of it's flawed. They have all kinds of problems with quality control, holding quality constant. I'm not. It's exactly. hard to know I'll, whether I'll, one <laughs> quick example that's really striking. According to official CPI data, over the last five years, housing costs are up about 7.5% total. Yeah, that's a little weird. According to the Case-Shiller <laughs> Index, they're down like 32%. So, that so kinda... that's a 40% discrepancy yeah. between Case-Shiller and the CPI on housing, and housing's like a third of the CPI, roughly. Yeah. So in other words, I'm not trying to argue that you know we're really in deflation this year. I, I'm just I think saying we don't this really particular know. year... You know, probably inflation is a little bit positive, but what I would argue is, in general, the CPI is unreliable, and that's why I tend to focus on nominal GDP. And if you look at nominal GDP, I mean, it's just unambiguous. I mean, instead of the normal five percent a year increase in nominal GDP in Which the last be... three years, it's been going up about, on average, I think one to one and a half percent a year. And that's barely above population growth. Yeah, so basically what we're, we're doing is we're not providing enough income where we could have a fast recovery even if our economy was perfect. In other words, even if we had no none of these flaws that you and I don't like about the regulatory system, the tax system and everything, it's very unlikely that this amount of income would allow for a fast recovery because to get a fast recovery, we would have to have rapid deflation. And you just don't tend to see fast recoveries during periods of rapid deflation, um, at least in a modern economy where probably you know wages are stickier than they used to be. So, um, so, so let's, anyway. So let's have a little fun. Mm-hmm. Um, let's suppose uh, on December 31st, Ben Bernanke um, – writes a memo to to President Obama and he says, uh, you know, I've always wanted to spend more time with my family, um, so I'm resigning. And to the surprise of many, uh, the president, desperate for uh, a healthy economy over the next nine months, uh, ten months for obvious reasons, um, puts in place uh, Scott Sumner of Bentley University and he's approved. uh, And on January 1st, he takes uh, – Control of the Fed's chair. What would what would you do? What might you do? That what would be your announcements and actions that would you think be the best in this situation? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you the, want? The I'll one, give you a week if you want, but we're recording it now. I mean, it's only you got you got ten days, but but let's pretend well, it's I now. Can, I can give you a quick <laughs> answer, but uh, it may not be a simple answer. First of all, any Fed policy has to be a strategy. It can't be just a tactic for the moment. So I can't really know what's best for right now unless I know what the long-term trajectory is. So if if I had to choose, I might just default to what the Fed was doing prior to the recession, which was promoting about 5% nominal GDP growth, maybe a little bit lower maybe 4%, um, and, and how would you get there? the how long-term would you, target. How would you get there from here? It's nice to say that. So what would be – how do you get to a target like that? What would be your okay. actions or words? Okay. But the second part is I think we need a little bit of catch-up in the next two years because we're so far below trend. I, I don't think we should try to go all the way back up to the old trend line, but I'd like to see us promote maybe 6 or 7% growth for a couple of years and then – Whatever the, whatever we decide on, let's say I pick 4% thereafter. Now, how do we get there? Um, what you The ideal policy would be to create uh, nominal GDP futures contracts and peg the price of them. In other words, issue enough money 
until the market expected nominal GDP to grow that fast. So you would just keep injecting money until you got the nominal GDP futures contract showing the expected amount that? of growth that the um, the goal of the policy was. How would you inject that a sufficient amount of money given that the past injections have had no effect? Well, first of all, if you want to make them more effective, you'd stop paying interest on reserves. Okay, that's a start. Now, let's suppose banks uh, continued to sit on the money even at zero interest rates. You could always make the interest on reserve negative. That would be you a fairly them. radical move. You, you could charge, charge them for holding on reserves. Excess reserves. That, that's, that's clever. Now, I, I happen to think that's not necessary, so um, I'm just saying that's, that's a fairly radical option. What I would prefer... That, by the way, that doesn't seem so radical. <laughs> well, it's, it, would, it would probably, for instance, destroy the money market mutual fund industry because people would be better off keeping money in safes in their house at zero interest cash than they would... Um, uh, you know, sitting in money market mutual funds at negative interest rates. But I don't know if you see what I'm saying. So I don't. There, there would be some <laughs> uh, distortions to the financial system. That would be so really bad. But I would yeah. prefer that instead of going to negative interest on reserves, okay. the first option would be to simply buy as many assets as are necessary. Um, the Fed hasn't even scratched the surface to, to what they could buy. Um, there's a lot of assets out there. But I think the more important point is that people tend to look at this problem backwards. What the Fed has been doing is injecting money and promising that they'll pull the money out again before we get a lot of inflation or uh, anything of that sort. So it's what's Mop called it a temporary currency injection, yeah. temporary monetary injection. Those are not going to boost GDP very much or spending or inflation. To have an effect, it has to be more permanent. So... What the target does is it tells you the Fed is going to leave enough money out there permanently to uh, try to hit this track that you've laid out, this trajectory that you're targeting for nominal income. And um, again, the optimal solution in my mind would be for the markets to determine how much money and what interest rates and so on through these this futures contract uh, technique. Uh, where essentially the Fed just targets the price of this futures contract and passively adjusts the money supply as needed to make that target price stick. In other words, the analogy would be, it'd be like the gold standard, except instead of pegging the price of gold, you'd be pegging the price of nominal GDP futures. In both systems, the money, the quantity of money in circulation is determined by how much the public wants to hold given that trajectory for nominal GDP. Now, people will say, well, what if, you know, no amount of money gets you there? Uh, you can't really seriously argue that because in the, you know, reducto ad absurdum, the Fed would buy up all of planet Earth <laughs> and pay for it with currency. Yeah. And obviously that's not an equilibrium outcome. Long before you got to that point, uh, inflation expectations would start rising and you'd have to stop the ejection. I would even go further, though. Um, I would predict that if my policy was put into effect, the monetary base, that's the money created by the Fed, would actually go down. In other words, we have plenty of money in circulation right now, too much to uh, hit that target. The reason we're not having faster growth is um, that there's too much demand for money, partly because of the interest on reserves and partly because the low expected nominal GDP growth. If we had a robust, more expansionary policy, people wouldn't and banks wouldn't want to be sitting on reserves. They would move the money into places where they could earn higher rates of return. And it would turn out we would actually need much less um, currency uh, to achieve our target than we currently have in circulation, So, uh, or base money to be precise. When I talk about the monetary base, I'm including both money in the bank. Uh, that are they're sitting on the so-called excess reserves and also the cash in circulation. Right. Part of the base. So, but what would happen is um, the banks would probably stop sitting on all those excess reserves. The public certainly doesn't want to hold three trillion dollars in cash. So, what would happen is um, at some point the Fed would have to pull some of that money out of circulation that was injected during the emergency, because in a healthy economy you simply don't have that much demand for liquidity. So I, I'm not really worried that the Fed wouldn't be able to buy enough assets to make it happen. 
I would expect once they start buying assets, expectations would increase sharply. And then very quickly, they would have to reverse course and start pulling money out of circulation. So uh, you attended the University of Chicago as Mm -hmm. I did. Uh, Did you ever by chance ever take a a class from uh, George Stigler? Uh, Yes. So I did as well. And I don't know if you talked about it when you learned with him, but uh, he would say – uh, he would contrast his theory of regulation with what he called the Ralph Nader theory. Yeah. So the Ralph Nader theory is the reason we have lousy regulation that doesn't serve the public, that serves special interests, that helps corporations unfairly is because we have the wrong people in the job. We just need better people. If we had the right people in the job, it would turn out okay. So the George Stigler theory is eh, it really doesn't matter who's in the job. There are these fundamental underlying incentives, and that's what you need to look at. And once you understand those, you know how they're going to behave. It doesn't matter who's in the job. Mm-hmm. And the variation on that is, is Milton Friedman's observation that uh, you don't want the right people in office. You don't want to you don't want to make create a system where you have to get the right people in office to get the right policy. You want a world where the wrong people can get in office, but they're encouraged to do the right thing because of the nature of the political system. So. I look at the Fed, and you, again, you could have argued. I think many people did argue in two thousand and six or seven, of seven and, and eight, that there couldn't be a better person than Ben Bernanke for this job because of what we talked about before. He was aware of the risks of of monetary uh, contraction, and he would never let that happen on his watch. Now, you've suggested through a variety of forces, again, nothing sinister, that that's what's actually happened, and you've written recently about other. Decisions the Fed has made and, and made the point that they've been contractionary at times and they should have been expansionary. Where does that leave us? And we're almost out of time. So where does that leave us with what the Fed's good at? I mean, it seems it's an institution that for political reasons, I argue recently that it's some unfortunate political forces that encourage the Fed to be nice to some of its friends who are not my friends, meaning the banking system, the financial sector. Um why would we ever – and I don't think Scott Sumner is going to get picked on January 1st. And even if he did, George Stigler would say maybe he wouldn't be like Scott Sumner anymore. He'd be more like any other chair of the Fed, nothing personal. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave us for you know where we ought to go as a, as a society, as a, as a nation with respect to the Fed? Well, seems, to I mean, me, it, seems to me they've done a horrible job and they are incapable of doing the fine-tuning and – and textbook uh, corrections that we teach our students seems to me we need something more radical than just a different kind of policy, a better chair of the Fed. What are your thoughts on that as we close out? Well, uh, I kind of have mixed feelings on that. I mean, I think for the banking system, they probably do get uh, a little too cozy with the banks and start to think that you know what's good for the banks is good for the country. Um, so you know that part of Stigler's argument, I I think there's some merit to. Um, but for macroeconomics, I don't think it works very well. I mean, if certainly you couldn't really use that sort of argument for the Great Depression um, if if the monetary theory is correct. I mean, one possibility is the Great Depression was completely not due to bad government policies. But if you buy the Milton Friedman argument that I accept that, that tight money was played a big role, the damage in the Great Depression to all classes of society was so great that there's no plausible special interest group argument for why the Great Depression happened. No, it's just incompetence. Yeah, it's incompetence. No, it's just, that's now, a, that falls under my theory too. Right, and <laughs> that's right. And I think if you look at the current situation, well, you know, the, most economists are basically comfortable with what the Fed's doing. So I wouldn't expect the Fed to do anything different from the consensus of economists. So I'm not. I'm not necessarily shocked by what the Fed's doing. I'm shocked by what my fellow uh, macroeconomists believe that I thought they didn't believe a few years ago, and I was pretty naive, obviously. Um, so that's really what shocked me. And you know, I'm just sort of out there trying to change opinions, but not to be too fatalistic. Um, you could argue that we do make incremental progress. I mean, it's possible that if if we hadn't had some of the um, insights from Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz and so on, that maybe this crisis would have led to another Great Depression, not just a Great Recession. So, I mean, I know that's that's certainly not a very... Uh, um, well, that's not, that's not trivial. You know, it's that's not, not trivial. trivial. I mean, it's, it's certainly a weak defense in a sense, but 
obviously, uh, as Adam Smith said, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. I mean, anybody who focuses on economics is always going to be dealing with big problems of one sort or another. There's just lots of big problems out there. And so I don't think one can just look at the fact that there are big problems and necessarily come to the conclusion that the entire system is in some way flawed. Um, you know, maybe it is, but maybe we're just making little incremental progress one step at a time, and, and we have to make a lot more progress, uh, do better next time around. I, I happen to think that um, based on what we know now, if the same thing happened again, the Fed would not do the same thing. They would have been much more aggressive. And, uh, you know, I'm on record saying that if Europe collapses and threatens another Lehman moment, the Fed won't behave the same way. They'll do something, not necessarily my nominal GDP targeting, but something fairly dramatic and analogous that is actually much more effective than what they did in 2008. So, you know, I'm, I'm on record with that prediction. I hope it isn't tested. I hope Europe doesn't collapse. But um, I do feel the Fed has sort of learned some lessons out of this. And in a weird way, I think the popularity of my blog is um, evidence that, you know, other people seem to think I have something useful to say about the crisis that was missed in early 2009 when I started blogging. And so I'm hoping, you know, we've learned some lessons from this, but, you know, obviously we won't know until next time around. My guest today has been Scott Sumner. Scott, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.